Well, let's turn to that passage now. James chapter 3. I hope you've got a Bible there. I'll read the passage for us and pray. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who was never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed already convicted by this reading from your scriptures. And we pray now for Pete as he brings us a message from your word that you would speak to us. Help him, Lord. It is a challenging thing to speak on speech. So please, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to him and us now and do us good by your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike, so much for reading uh, from Scripture and for praying for us and for me. And uh, good morning to you all. Um, what words have stuck with you this week? Words you've heard, words you've spoken. Apparently, the average person uh, speaks at least 7,000 words a day, with many speaking much more than that, obviously. But think about what that means for you. Those 7,000 words, at least, that you speak each day are your imprint on the world. They dictate how people perceive you and how to respond to you. How many of those words you spoke this week made a difference to those around you, both positive and negative? How many of those words seem to serve little or no purpose at all? Add into the mix um, all the words on, on the news, on social media texts, on tweets, on Insta posts, on YouTube, TikTok, uh, even old-fashioned blogs and maybe even letters um, that you not only contribute to but also consume. What impact have they had on you and on other people? Now, how would you feel if all of those words were to be broadcast right now? via YouTube, direct to friends, family, colleagues, neighbours. Well, it would be shocking, wouldn't it? It's fascinating that the power our words can have, 
Three simple words, I love you, can change everything in a person's life, can't it? Or just think of the emotion contained in another three words, it's coming home. <laughs> and if you don't know what that is, turn in your telly, eight o'clock tonight, either BBC One or ITV and enjoy. Well, words have the power to inspire, don't they? Encourage, motivate, they free people, as well as the power to crush and destroy. And this shouldn't be news to any of us. We see it in everyday life. We've experienced it. But there's a huge difference between knowing something and putting it into practice, isn't there? And the Apostle James makes this abundantly clear in this very convicting passage here in chapter 3. And I hope you've got your Bibles open to follow through on this. So uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And in this passage, he expands on what he's already been teaching earlier in, the, in his letter. So let me just give you a few highlights. Chapter 1, verse 19, James writes, Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Can you see the process there? Hearing, then speaking, and the emotions that come with that. Chapter 1 verse 26 he says those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein, we'll come back to that picture it comes up again, a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. So you think you're religious but the way you're speaking shows something of a difference. Chapter 2 verse 12 speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Well, I hope you can see the link James is clearly making. What we say, God hears. What we say, God judges. What we say shows whether our faith is real or fake. So it's no mistake that having just written in chapter 2, 26, the words that form just before our passage, James has said, so faith without deeds is dead. And James now goes on to apply this truth to our tongues. And I've got three points today. And the first is, quite simply, we're confronted with a vital warning right here in verses 1 to 2. The red warning light is on, isn't it? Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Well, how, how do I teach a passage that makes it so obvious that teaching the Bible is something that exposes us to more judgment? <laughs> uh, we need to remember that a teacher's essential instrument, um, aside from obviously everything coming from God's word, which is the foundation, the essential instrument is, is our tongues. Uh, it's so easily misused. And James uses, let's remember this, he, he uses this image of the tongue as the focal point for everything to do with our mouth and what comes out of it, our words. It becomes a, a catch-all image for everything that links us as whole people, heart, mind, soul, affections, desires, words that come out of the mouth. So when someone preaches in a congregation or leads a discipleship seminar or oversees a small group study, it is right that people can hear our words and know that they're faithful to scripture, but they also should be able to see our behaviour is in step with scripture. You're right to expect church leaders to model a life of dependence on Jesus. You should be watching me as a Bible teacher, our service and worship leaders, our elders, our life group leaders, to see if what we say and what we do is obedient to Jesus and his word. Teachers have greater responsibility and influence in the church. And on the final day, 
Jesus will hold us accountable for the way we've used that responsibility and influence to build up his church. He's gracious. It means our salvation is secure. But we will be held to account. And James himself, as a teacher, doesn't let that scrutiny, that truth, put him off from teaching. The whole letter is him teaching. In fact, to remain silent rather than teach truth and correct error is sinful too. So perhaps James here was concerned about the motives some people had. Were, were they too keen, rushing to be teachers for the status or praise? And in and chapter 3, verse 14, there's this the, quite a pointed statement about envy and selfish ambition. And, and maybe that was clearly a problem with these Christians. It's a dangerous impulse which can lead to conflict in a church as well, as we see in chapter 4, verse 1. Clearly, the attitude of the teacher is key, and chapter 4, verse 10 sums this up well as James says, Humble yourself before God, and he will lift you up. Enrico Tice's excellent, um, very challenging book called Faithful Leaders, which I was reading earlier this year, He mentions the pastor and theologian Jack Miller, who I know Mike has quoted from before. And Jack Miller um, was a seminary professor in America responsible for training uh, whole generations of pastors. And he told his students this, if the pastor is not the chief repenter, the gospel becomes a theoretical solution for the theoretical problem of sin, for theoretical sinners, should there be any present. Can you see how that nullifies this? If we don't take this passage clearly, we're deceiving ourselves. It's nothingness. So it feels right before I go on any further, just to pray some words that I've been using this week from a book called The Valley of Vision, and it's a prayer entitled Minister's Confession. And here's just a few phrases from it that have sunk deeply and resonate with me, not just this week, but throughout my ministry. Oh God, I know that I often do your work without your power and sin by my dead, heartless, blind service, my lack of inward light, love and delight, my mind, heart, tongue moving without your help. But you show your power by my frailty so that the more feeble I am, the more fit to be used. For you pitch a tent of grace in my weakness. Help me to rejoice in my infirmities and give you praise, to acknowledge my deficiencies before others and not be discouraged by them, that they may see your glory more clearly. Amen. But the problem of the tongue is something we all face. You can see that in verse 2. We all stumble, that is to sin, in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. And then if you look in verse 8, a little bit further on, James makes it clear, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So having highlighted that those who want to be teachers, James now broadens his focus for, for all followers of Jesus. We all stumble. If only we could keep a control on our tongues, keep it in check, we'd be perfectly in control of everything else. It's a lifetime's work to subdue the tongue. How easy it is to bark out an order or rip into someone for cutting you up in the car or distort the truth to the boss or just share a bit of gossip with a few friends. How well is your tongue tongue taming going? 
like Isaiah, confessing before the Lord in chapter 6, we all echo with him, Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am a person of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. We should feel the weight of conviction here as we listen and take on board James's teaching in this next section, verses 3 to 12, because here he just shows us the massive problem of our little tongue. The massive problem of our little tongue. Look at verse 3 onwards with me. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Picture that natural powerhouse, the horse, and the largest moving vehicle of the first century, the ship, both illustrating how they can be controlled and directed by the smallest of devices. In the same way, the tongue is so small in comparison with the influence and control it has on our lives. Apparently, on average, a human tongue weighs about 70 grams. That, that's less than a Mars duo bar, I found out as I looked in my cupboard. The, the tongue really can make great boasts because like the bit and like the rudder, it is very effective. It really changes things, both for good and bad. And the immense damage the tongue causes is pictured by fire. So in verse 5b, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and it itself set on fire by hell. Well, James moves from simile to metaphor and calls the tongue a fire, a raging out of control forest fire. You might recall the news images of the the terrible bushfires that have troubled New South Wales in Australia each summer. Those fires devastate and destroy anything in its past, even leaping over roads and fire breaks as the wind picks up. But for James, the hellfire of the tongue is more deadly. The tongue, again because it is the most difficult of all the parts of our body to control, becomes the channel, the the, the focal point within us. It becomes the focal point for all that rebellion against God, the rejection of God, the hostility to God within us. The church planting reformer and scholar um, John Calvin described the tongue as a slender portion of flesh that contains the whole world of iniquity. And as we'd expect with James, he stands in the stream of truth flowing from the great Old Testament book of Uh, Proverbs, that wisdom literature. And indeed, if you go on the sermon archive at uh, gracechurchmanchester.net, you'll see, you'll find a a brilliant sermon there by Mike on, on words from Proverbs. But listen to this one, Proverbs 16, verse 27. A scoundrel plots evil, and on their lips it is like a scorching fire. 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 21. As charcoal to embers... And as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. Interestingly, that theme comes back up in chapter 4. Tim Keller puts it it well. Long before the internet, words had a remarkable power to go viral. Technology now enables false rumours and fake news to spread instantly. But in another sense, 
It has always been so. False reports, or even true but unkindly meant words, have always had the power to spread like a scorching fire to ruin reputations and alienate people from one another. And the really shocking thing about James's condemnation of the tongue here in the passage is the damage it has on us, the speaker. Hellish, false and unloving words spread within us and corrupt us. Not only does it hurt others, but it changes and corrupts us, our bodies, our heart, our mind, our soul, our affections and will. The whole of us is stained by our selfish words. It's like a cycle that just keeps giving, but not in a good way. What's going on in my desires, hearts and minds is verbalised in my words and that feeds and fuels yet more of this raging hellfire. Other words bring us under the, our words bring us under the condemnation of hell, which is the experience of God's holy, perfectly just, controlled anger at our rebellion against him. No wonder James continues in verse 7 to describe our tongue as an untainable animal and in verse 8, a restless evil full of deadly poison. These are vivid images of the spiritual danger we're in if we do not take the gospel seriously. So what does this restless, untainable tongue look like? As you read through the letter of James, he's given us a number of examples of the danger of the tongue. So in chapter 1, verse 26, that keeping a tight rein on the tongue suggests loose, impulsive speech that needs to be literally reined in. Rash, rash speech it is more than just carelessness. Um, it exposes the deep recesses of our inner self. Someone given to lying or, or a harsh snap judgments or just unthinkingly blurting stuff out can be signs of a person who has dishonesty or resentments or is just so self-absorbed in his or her own heart. There's the empty spiritual God talk that James flags up in chapter 2 verse 16. Last week Mike looked at this and we saw it's vacuous, it doesn't hold any weight or it doesn't have substance. The believer says, I'll be praying for you, God be with you, but we don't do anything with that. We don't do anything about the needs in front of us that the person's brought to us, even when God's given us perhaps the opportunity and resources to do that. It's empty. There's the boastful, self-sufficient words that we see in chapter 4, verse 13, where the business person says, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go on this or that city, uh, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Well, James says, well, wait, you've forgotten something. Your ambition, your success-driven plans are utterly dependent on the sustaining power and goodness of the Lord. Yes, have the plans, be ambitious, but hold it lightly, with thankfulness to the Lord who holds your life. And then there are slanderous words against brothers and sisters in Christ that divide church families and bring so much hurt and pain. In chapter 4, verse 11, James makes this clear, where he says... Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. He's got to write this to a church. Stop slandering each other. Jerry Bridges, again a Christian uh, evangelist and pastor, uh, described this in his book on respectable sins. 
He writes, we slander when we ascribe wrong motives to people, even though we can't see their hearts or know the particular circumstances. We slander when we blow out of proportion another person's sin and make the person appear to be more sinful than he or she really is. When we lie by exaggeration or by the failure to tell the whole truth. And the motive behind slander, he says, is, is often to gain advantage in some way over another person. In the business world, it's called backstabbing or climbing the corporate ladder. But Christian organisations, Christian churches and communities are not immune. Then there's that grumbling mentioned in chapter 5, verse 9. It always makes me laugh when I see the word grumble because uh, a very good friend of mine is a Sheffield Wednesday fan. And after Sheffield Wednesday matches on Radio Sheffield, BBC Sheffield, they have a phone in and they call it praise or grumble. And, and most of the time it's all grumbling. But um, here's grumbling in the church. Verse 9 of chapter 5, where, Paul, uh, where James says it's got to stop because grumbling feeds cynicism. Grumbling slowly suffocates the life, the hope, the love out of the friendships and mission that are in the church. And you know what? This sorry litany, and it is a sorry litany, isn't it? As I've been speaking, I wonder what's been going through your mind. Who has flashed up as you've heard words said as you've thought about how you've spoken to others or what they've said to you it is a sorry litany and it's all summed up here with this double-minded two-faced wild inconsistency of praising God and cursing people that James paints so accurately in those verses 9 to 10 of chapter 3 just look at those with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. You know, if we're honest, insults and curses can come so naturally, so instinctively to us. I'd like to say it takes me by surprise, but honestly, it doesn't. I know how easily they are formed in my internal dialogue of my mind, even if they never reach my mouth to be catapulted out by my tongue. And there's no way of justifying it. Oh, I, I really didn't mean it like that. Or I was just really tired having a bad day. It's still sin. No matter how much a person has hurt and sinned against you, they are still, with all their flaws and sin, made in the image of God. So to insult them is to defame a person who ultimately has worth and dignity because they belong to God. They are God's creature. And so our praises to God can actually act as a sort of cover-up for my insults. Can you see the inconsistency, the hypocrisy of that? Well, where does this leave us? Now, I appreciate some hearing this might be kicking against it, might be kicking against me, might be, <laughs> what is going on with God's word? It's a bit like you're the powerful horse, if I can put it that way. You're just prepared to gallop off free to do what you want. Perhaps in your opinion, uh, you know, the Bible's naive, even oppressive. I, I don't need anyone to tell me what to do, let alone God. What I can do with my words is my business. All I'd say, and just it's as a question, in your self-made freedom, you can't deny, can you, that there's still the fire and stain of your corrupt words that's both destroying you and others 
can I suggest that you still need to sort that problem out? You're not really free. And deep down as well, you can't ignore when someone hurts you with their words. You want justice for those hard and harsh and cruel words that have been spoken to you that have damaged you. You want them to be held accountable. And what James says is, yes, that will happen. But it starts with us. Well, perhaps there's some of us thinking, well, I can try harder. This has motivated me. I can do this better. Maybe if I can get some verbal self-help exercises, that, that will help control my tongue. But a vow of silence won't work because we've already said it's going on up here in our minds. Counting to 10 won't work. Even asking ourselves some really helpful questions at the point of going, should I say this and saying, is what I'm going to say true? No, maybe I'm exaggerating. Is what I'm going to say be helpful? Mm, helpful for me getting my way, but not necessarily that person. Even if we slow things down and can do that sort of consistency, there will still be that time where we'll flip, where I'm not answering those questions. Boom, there it comes. When the heat is on, when the heat of the moment takes over. Because the real problem is they, those solutions don't get to the root problem of our sin-ridden hearts. Mm. They don't go deep enough. And as we read James 1 to 12, I hope we can just feel both the weight of conviction here, but also the longing for change. Your tongue is being cross-examined. Your tongue shows what's going on in your heart. Just think of the words we'd like to take back, the ruthless gossip, the arguments with a relative, the coarse joking at colleagues' expense, perpetuating lies, distorting truth to protect our reputation. And then there are the words that we hold on to, the ones that people have spoken which can define us. I found this quote through Scott Sauls, a pastor in Nashville, and he quotes Mariah Carey, the multi-platinum's uh, selling singer-songwriter. And she openly shares, I can hear a thousand praises and one criticism, and the one criticism will eliminate the thousand praises. We should feel the weight of conviction from our words. We should feel the hopelessness of it. And my wife, Emily, as she was helping me with the sermon, reading through it and doing some edits, she said, Pete, what are you, what are you asking people to do, though? And I suppose, quite simply, I've only got one thing which is this, and I think this is where James takes us. He takes us just to see we need the perfect word from the perfect saviour, a saviour who saves us, a saviour who transforms our word. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told there that faith is not about us, but it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. James makes that clear. And again, in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, he is the one, the Lord Jesus is the one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. You see, when Jesus was speaking to religious leaders, he said some strong words. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? So the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken, for by your words 
you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. That's in Matthew 12. You see, Jesus not only sees and hears our words, but they form part of that perfect final judgment on us. But our words do not have to condemn us. There is forgiveness. Because Jesus Christ is the Lord full of compassion and mercy, as James describes, chapter 5, verse 11. James knew that compassion firsthand as he moved from unbelief to belief, worshipping his half-brother, his older brother Jesus, as God and Saviour, his God, his Saviour. You see, Jesus was the one who never spoke a sinful word in his life. He took the punishment for all our curses, hateful, double-minded, hypocritical, proud, self-seeking words. And as he took the fire of hell for us, he spoke these words, Father, forgive them. And as he breathed his last breath, he declared, it is finished. You see, our sinful words do not have the final say. They are forgiven by Jesus' perfect word, the gospel, the good news. And his perfect word takes our double-minded, selfish, God-rejecting hearts and makes them new. His perfect word, that word implanted, as James said in chapter 1, verse 21, the word implanted in us which can save us, as he takes that word and brings life, our words become true, pure, encouraging, refreshing, that build each other up, that correct and challenge out of love rather than selfish gain. Renewing our words to conform to that perfect saviour, our perfect saviour Jesus, I realise is a lifetime change project. It won't be finished until we reach eternity and see him face to face. And it's a daily reality. It doesn't let us off the hook. It's not in our strength, but in humble dependence on God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And so the one thing I want us to do as we close is have a moment, just quite simply, to repent. That is to say sorry to God for our words. That's how I'd like us to end. And I think that's how I'd like us to, as Christians, just carry on. Acknowledging that we need God's forgiveness. So in a moment now, just call to mind the words you've used this week, the good and the bad. Come to Jesus, recognising you surrendered to him. Give up defending yourself. Confess. Name the wrongs, the things spoken, motivated by whether our selfish ambition, hurt, anger, whatever, but confess, name the wrongs. Own it. Take responsibility. Acknowledge there are consequences for our words which flow into actions. Recognise and name the harms that our words have caused the people we've hurt. Empathise. Feel the weight of what we've done to the Lord and to others. And then from this place of brokenness and dependence on God's grace, those words, I am sorry, begin to emerge. The forgiveness of Jesus Christ takes root to help change and damage, to begin the healing restoration. His good news will work in us and through us will go viral. 
His good news will transform our hearts. His good news, his words through us will bring reconciliation and peace. And so as I pray, I'm using Hosea chapter 14, verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. And a prayer from Augustine. Eternal God, the light of the minds that know you, the joy of the hearts that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you, grant us so to know you that we may truly love you, so to love you that we may truly serve you, whose service is perfect freedom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.